Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, or you can just look on your bulletin, uh, to uh, turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be considering today verses 1 through 4. It's not a long passage, but a rich passage. Hear God's word. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Please pray with me. Our Father, we ask now that you would awaken our hearts, warm us up to the realities of glory, of heaven, of your kingdom, of Christ, our Savior. Lord, help us now to hear what you have to say to us through this passage. Give us soft hearts, convict, rebuke, encourage, delight us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Not sure you are aware, I assume you are aware, but the chapter divisions and verses in your Bibles are not inspired. And especially in this case, that big three Right here at the beginning of this passage, it creates too thick of a, it draws too thick of a line in our minds, separating it from what came before. Paul is simply continuing what he has been talking about, what we looked at last week. He's simply resuming what he's been saying and how he had previously identified and exposed the whispering voices of self-made religion. In verses 16 through 23, a do-it-yourself religion, as we looked at last week, a merely human kind of religion, right? Mere do's and don'ts, mere ritualism, self-imposed sacrifices, afflictions, and penances to somehow prove our superior devotion to him, the fetishizing of mystical experiences, that draws our attention away from Christ and draws other people's attention to ourselves when we boast in these things and seek these things. They're distractions, turning us away from the head. These things puff up with spiritual, puff us up with spiritual pride. This is what mere religion does to us. It distracts attention from the true head, which is Christ. It divides the body over superficial matters. And it doesn't touch the inner corruption of the heart. Rather, it feeds it. This is what Paul has been saying, that he's been exposing mere religion as a kind of religion band-aid that we may be tempted to put upon spiritual heart disease. And Paul has already intimated that what we need is nothing less than union with Christ. 
Nothing else will suffice. There is no other remedy for us in our situation as fallen sinners in desperate need of life. We need to be united with God in Christ. And this is what Paul says it means to be a Christian. This is actually his most common description of the Christian. It is one who is in Christ. Those who are with Christ, those two ways of speaking are virtually, they're basically synonymous. They go together to be in Christ or with Christ. To be with Christ is bound up in what it means to be in Christ. A Christian is one who is united to him. We are bound up with him. We are engrafted into Christ. And because we are so united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, all of the riches of his person and work, his life, death, and resurrection and ascension are are ours. They're applied to us. And so we can actually say, with Christ, I died. With Christ, I was raised. With Christ, I am now. As he lives, I live. This is what it means to be in Christ. And this is why Paul says here and elsewhere, in Philippians he says, to live is Christ. There's no other life for us. And in our passage, in verse for he says, Christ, who is what? Your life. The imagery that Jesus gives is of branches being engrafted into the life-giving vine. Or as Paul likes to describe it as members animated by the head, who is the source of life, Christ himself. It is a life-giving union that we have by faith in him. But Paul wants to, is, is leading us now to see that this union that we have with Christ and what it, us being with him now by faith, it actually does something to our lives. It affects us. It infringes upon us in some way. It will and it must do something to our desires and our priorities, what we seek. It has been said, someone somewhere said, that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. It's indifference. And so as we come to this text, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that I'm seeking? What am I seeking to build my life upon? What is my deepest, my greatest priority in life? What is the grid through which I see life? These are the kinds of questions that Paul wants us to be asking in this text. Because, brothers and sisters, if we, what we seek tells us what we love. What we're seeking tells us what we love. And so we're going to look today at three Things. We're going to consider three things today from this text. What not to seek, what to seek, and how to seek. What not to seek, what 
to seek and how to seek. So first, let's consider what not to seek. What does Paul say here? In verses 1 through 3, I'm going to rephrase it to emphasize the negative aspect of Paul's command here, his exhortation. Because, he says, because you died with Christ, do not seek or set your mind on the things that are on earth. What does it mean to seek? What does it mean to set your mind on something? To seek means to strive for something, to aim at something, to desire or wish for something. It is something deeper than just an intellectual exercise. It is something that engages the whole person. Affections, mind, will. It is the orientation of our heart, the driving motivation of our heart. What are we seeking? And he says, set your mind on. This is, again, roughly synonymous with seek. Give careful consideration to, be intent upon this, side with, to side with someone or something. That's what it means to set your mind against something or with something or someone. We see Peter doing this in Matthew 16. When Jesus was going to the cross, Peter said, he rebuked his Lord and he said, may it never be, right? You're not going to go to the cross. And what did Jesus say? You're setting your mind on the things of man. And in doing so, he was siding with who? Satan himself. So Paul says to seek and set your mind not on the things of this earth. So does that mean we should all quit our jobs? Stop caring about whether the bills get paid. Stop caring about earthly things. Stop caring about whether the kids get fed or the trash gets out. Right? Stop caring about this planet and all the beauty therein. We know that's not what Paul means. Paul is focusing, as one commentator said, he's saying that we are to actually reject an earthbound mindset, an earthbound mindset. And that mindset gets expressed in two ways that appear at first glance to be opposites, but they're very much related. And that is, if we look at the context of this passage, on one side, mere religion that we just talked about is one way the earthbound mindset is expressed. And on the other side, moral rebellion. Right? We separate the We separate the world in terms of good people and bad people. That's what we tend to do as people, right? And we put the good on the side of, well, they must be closer to God. And yet, Paul says moralistic religion is on one side, still belongs to the earth, and moral rebellion on the other side, likewise belongs to the earth, is earthbound, he relegates both to the earth. We saw, we saw this in our earlier passages, but then also he moves on in verses 5 through 8 to describe what is earthly, the earthly desires of the flesh, the moral rebellion. Verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. These are the earthly things that characterize 
the old self and the flesh. They belong to this passing, corrupt, evil age. They're the product of our old identity in Adam, our fallen parent. And so Paul says both mere religion and moral rebellion belong to this world. I like how Sinclair Ferguson describes it. He says, both of these things, he says, that though they look different, they are really non-identical twins that emerge from the same womb. There's a vivid picture. Both are expressions of man's pride, his autonomy, and his self-reliance. And Paul says, if you died with Christ, then you died to both of these ways of being. So this is what we are to cease from seeking. These two ways of being in the world. Just as Christ's death cut the cord that bound us to this passing age, so, Paul says, Christ's resurrection and ascension have bound us to the age to come. And that has implications about what we are to seek. So consider what we are to seek. If then, he says, you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. What are the things above? When I asked my daughters what it meant to seek things above, they gave me some helpful answers. First, answer number one, sky. Answer number two, my favorite, blue. Answer number three, clouds. Right. And we might think, you know, angels maybe. That would be another answer. Maybe, maybe dwelling or speculating on, you know, metaphysical, you know, the, the subs. What is heaven? Metaphysically speaking, let's speculate about it. Let's think about it. Let's think really hard about it. And let's try to enter into those things. He can't mean that, right? Because he just condemned that way of thinking in the previous passage. In chapter 2, verse 18, that those who are seeking to delight in penetrating the spiritual, into the spiritual realm and are seeking mystical experiences, right, he doesn't have good things to say about these people. And so to seek the things above is not to just be inactive in contemplating heavenly realities, whatever that means, streets of gold, pearly gates. It means something else. He says we are to seek where Christ is at the Father's right hand. That's the language of kingdom reign. That's kingdom language. And so a parallel would be seek his kingdom. In Acts 1, we get a good um, visual lesson of what this looks like. In Acts 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he ascends into the sky and he disappears behind a cloud. And the disciples are completely you know, enamored with this. Obviously, someone just flew in front of them into the sky, a human, and disappeared. 
with no help from some jetpack or something. He ascended. And some, we kind of just need to stop and think about that. That's insane. They're looking into the sky. And how long do you think they looked into the sky trying to figure out what just happened? And all of a sudden, there's someone next to them talk, and it says in, in verse 10, and as they were gazing into heaven, it's completely hilarious, these two men all of a sudden stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The lesson here is clear. As the disciples were just previously asking Jesus, when are you going to bring the kingdom? When's it going to appear? When's it going to be manifested? But then he leaves. And the angels appear next to them and say, stop staring. Stop standing there. What are you doing? Right? There is a kingdom work to be done upon the earth. And you are to be participants in it. And so seeking things above does not mean inaction in contemplating the skies. It means being about God's kingdom now in your upon-the-earth existence. Just as we are united to Christ and share in his benefits, so we also now have received and share in his mission. This is what it means to be about the kingdom, to seek his righteousness. It means we are to seek it and present our bodies as instruments of righteousness in the world. And our prayer as Christians, as those who have been raised with Christ, are to be, is to be, Lord, your kingdom come. We long for it. Your will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven. And so to seek his kingdom is to engage in the concerns and the mission of heaven on the earth. To be about that mission. And first, to start with our own hearts and lives. To say, Lord, your kingdom come right here, right now, in my life, in my heart, in the way that I am, with my friends, with my spouse, with my kids, in this world, as I go about it, your kingdom come and start with me. Is this the prayer of your life? O oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Seeking the things above means seeking the kingdom. And seeking the kingdom is not disconnected from, but is very much all about seeking Jesus himself, his person. J.I. Packer says this, he says, The kingdom arrived with Jesus, and indeed one might say that as Son of God incarnate, Jesus is the kingdom of God in person. And so seeking 
The kingdom means seeking the face of Jesus. It means by faith, walking with Jesus, living your life before his face, in his presence, praying to Jesus, relying upon Jesus, trusting in the grace of Jesus, listening to the words of Jesus that he has spoken, studying the character of Jesus. Seeking the kingdom means having and pursuing a living, breathing relationship with the living Christ. Do you pursue him, his person? Do you love him, his person? Is your heart drawn to him? Do you receive life from him? Seeking Jesus means seeking his face. And when we seek his face, we inevitably will desire and seek to be like him. And this is what Paul goes on to say in verses 12 through 14. As he talks about the things that belong to heaven that we are to put on, they are the things of Jesus that characterize his person. If you look at the list, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love. And what? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. All of these things first belong to Jesus. And we are to seek to put them on as we seek his face and walk with him and delight in him. This is what it means to seek the things above. And so Paul has said that we are to consciously, if we have truly been united to Christ, if this change has occurred and the cord has been cut from this age in our life and we have been bound to the age to come, then we are to seek consciously, intentionally to strip off the old earthbound mindset and put on a heavenly one characterized by pursuing his kingdom purposes and the person of Christ. This is what we are to not seek and to seek. And now Paul goes, talks about how we are to seek. There is a way to seek these things. And I want to look at that in two, under two headings. First, as belonging. We are to seek as belonging and as hidden. That is, recognizing our belongingness and recognizing our hiddenness. We are to seek the heavenly as those who belong to heaven. Paul is not afraid, clearly, of issuing commands to us. And a preacher of the gospel should not be afraid of issuing commands either. Seek Jesus! That's a command. But Paul's commands are always rooted in who we are and what he has done. Verse 1 says, if you have been raised, which means we could say because you have been raised, you seek this. Verse 3, set your mind on things above because, for, 
Your life is hidden now with Christ in God. This is your present reality. You're not seeking to possess it. You do possess it now. Consider Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6. Paul there says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even as we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He seated us with him. This is our reality. He's not saying try by the powers of your mind to enter, to get to heaven where Jesus is. He's saying you are there already because of him. You are seated with him where Christ is seated. And that language of, of seated has amazing implications. He's seated. And if you think about it, when we think about the, the seatedness of the Son, his enthronement, what really is incredible is not that he is seated on a throne, because the Son, in one sense, has always been enthroned. The eternal Son has always and has never ceased to reign supreme with the Father and the Spirit. One God eternally blessed forever. Amen. Amen? What is new and amazing is that the eternal Son has taken his seat and throne as man, as our representative, as the one who fully identified with us. He took up our cause. He came and sided with us. He sought us out first. The Son of God seated in heaven is only good news for us because he first descended into the lower regions of the earth, as Paul says in Ephesians. Jesus said, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. He belonged to a higher transcendent reality. That was his home. We did not belong. But he came to be with us. He entered into our world. He entered into our life upon the earth existence. He came down, as it were, to the leper colony of sin. And he came near to us to be with us. And he touched us. And he loved us unto death. And he was suspended between heaven and earth to make reconciliation. And he was placed in the earth, in the ground, descending to the lowest place, identifying with us at our lowest state. He accomplished the work the Father gave him to do. And then he rose and he ascended and he returned to the infinite joy of the Father's delight and glory. But this is what our passage and 
what the passage in Ephesians says is so amazing that he didn't just ascend, leaving us. He, in a sense, took us with him. He bore us up with him, as it were, upon his heart and in his wounds to his father. And as he approached his father, this is what he said, according to Hebrews. Here I am, Father. I and the children you have given to me. And he, his father delighted. Rejoice. There was joy in heaven. His relationship to his father is not in question. His sonship is secure. He is seated. He is at rest. And so you can rest. You can rest. You can stop working for him like an employer. You can seek his face in a new way. You don't need to prove your worth to him, but you can seek his face. You can seek heavenly things as a child of heaven as one who belongs. And even if you have let your affections fall back to the old corrupt ways, the old person, you can now lift your eyes up to where Christ is and know that the Father still delights in you because he ever lives to intercede for you. And all who come to him he will never, no, not ever, cast out. So seek him as one who belongs. Seek the things above as one who belongs, because you are with Christ. And we are to seek him as one whose life is, is hidden. Look at verse Verses 3 and 4, your life, Paul says, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Though we live upon the earth and we enjoy all kinds of earthly blessings, ultimately, Paul says, our life is not found upon the earth and we should not go looking for it upon the earth. And We can hear that word and the call to seek heavenly things and not earthly things. We can hear that as a rebuke, as a hard word, because we are seduced very easily by our prosperity, by the goodness of our lives. We want to, we are tempted to put our roots into this earthly Babylon and claim it as our home. And yet we need to remember, who was this letter written to? It was written to first century Christians who were not living their best lives. Many lacked Roman citizenship. They lacked rights. Some were slaves. Persecution was on the horizon. The apostles are being killed. The apostle Paul is in prison. Earthly prospects don't look good. 
there's no earthly incentive to follow Jesus. And so to a marginalized, suffering people without earthly prospects or power or possessions, this word would have been sweet to the taste. Sweet. A sweet reminder that the true state and condition of our lives is hidden. And that the true condition of their lives was hidden from view, waiting to be revealed. One theologian says this, he says, It is no small observation that our life is said to be hidden, being buried under the humiliation of the cross and under various distresses differs nothing from death. But what is more to be desired than this, that our life remain with the very fountain of life? Hence, there is no reason why we should be alarmed if on looking around on every side, we nowhere see life. What's he saying? He's talking about the paradox of the Christian life. That you may look around at your life and see only death. Your life may look like a bloody crucifixion. And a crucifixion is not pretty. And it's not painless. But he says, don't be alarmed. What can be more desirable than to be with Jesus, the fountain of life? Your life is hidden with the fountain of life even as you suffer in this world. He says, your life in the truest sense is hidden with Christ in God. And this is a double security, a double assurance. Sinclair Ferguson says, picture it like your life being held in the strong hand of Jesus, who is himself held in the strong hand of his Father. John 10, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. How much more secure can you be? The psalmist speaks of God providing a safe place for him. This is what we read in our reading. A safe place for him. In Psalm 27, 9, he says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. And the psalmist is continually crying out, God, hide me. I will hide in him. You are my shelter. You are my hiding place. You are my refuge. You are my strong tower. But this all comes to its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is that shelter that God has provided for us now. Right now, we hide in him. And so, what's the worst? Imagine. If the worst thing happens to you in this life, this is what Paul would say. This is what Paul says. If the worst thing happens to you, God forbid, right? It would be terrible. Crucifixion is a bad thing. But if the worst thing happens to you, the Lord Jesus will keep your life. He has your life. It's hidden. It's tucked away, secure. 
Yes, Paul says, we're being killed all day long. We're the, considered the scum of the earth. But nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can the accuser do? What can man do? Jesus is with you and your life is hidden with him in God. And the reality of your situation is not apparent. It's not visible to the external eye. It's not even visible to yourself. But this is what it is. It's not readily apparent that you are a child of the king. But one day it will be. Your life will not always be buried under the cross. One day, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. This is our hope. The glory of God will be revealed, and all flesh will see it. And only then will the truth of your situation, the truth of your identity, the truth of your possession and inheritance and who you are, only then will it be revealed. The glory, the God of glory, will lift up the heads of his people on that day and vindicate them. Will raise them up. Will hold them up unashamedly and say, they're mine. Here they are. And then the cross that you have borne will turn to glory. Will turn to glory. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, it's a fictional story. He says, he puts these words in the mouth of an angelic character, an angel in the book. The angel says, This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. This is the hope of glory. That the cross that we bear, that we pick up now, will one day be transformed into glory. When Christ is revealed, it's hidden now. It will be revealed one day. And so we wait upon the Lord. I would have lost heart unless I believed I'd see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the call. Where is your love today? Where, is, where are you placing your affections today? Is it in the upon-the-earth life? Are you seeking your life and placing the weight of your life upon the earth? Or are you lifting your eyes to where your life is truly found, where it is hidden? Lift your eyes again today to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this word. Please help us as we struggle in this world under the weight of the cross and in our mundane tasks and existence, Lord, to 
not be disenchanted, Lord, to remember the glory of heaven and the hope that we have that one day you will come and make all things new and you will transform the cross into glory. Lord, give us, fill us with hope, renew our hope today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.